he's a visual storyteller. And I think all of us experience that incredible joy, especially for editors, the way that these moments are dissected by him. Telling the story breaks down the story. It was relying on the power of film and the visuals to tell these stories, which is what you see in all of his movies now. They're incredible shots and direction of focus. I'm Isabel Soderni, and this is Frame by Frame. In this episode, picture editors Bill Panko and Chris Bowden, supervising sound editor Dan Sable and Maurice Schell, and re-recording mixer Lee Dichter talk about their collaborations with director Brian De Palma. Best known for his films Dress to Kill, Blowout, Scarface, and The Untouchables, Brian De Palma became a part of the new Hollywood generation of the 1960s and 70s, basing himself solidly in the New York filmmaking scene. New York didn't do filmmaking by the books the way California did. We, right. they, they were totally wide open. It's interesting how the East Coast was the Wild West. It also gave freedom to all of us in our own areas of work and picture and sound. And, you know, it, we didn't have these strictures exactly. in place like yeah. that had right. been in place beginning of cinema, <clears throat> obviously mostly began out there and, and developed. And they developed their own rules and ways of doing things, which New York didn't have to do. Now it broke the rules. Starting out as a science and tech whiz kid, building computers in high school in Philadelphia, and majoring in physics and Russian at Columbia University, Brian De Palma steadily developed his craft as a filmmaker, but it wasn't until his 10th feature, Carrie, that he established his own cinematic signature, having otherwise mastered the visual grammar of suspense, psychological thriller, and crime drama. The host for today's episode is Warner Brothers Sound. You can share this conversation through the website bit.do slash framebyframe or via Twitter at at postny. I asked Chris, Bill, Dan, Maurice, and Lee what kind of conversations they had when Brian De Palme first introduced them to a project. Dan Sable joined us via recorded telephone line. In my case, it, it was just, uh, he might talk about it, the storyboards a bit, but it's basically, you know, Bill, yeah, uh, I'm making a movie. You're free? Yeah. When? Tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not literally, but it, it kind of felt that way a, a, a lot of the times. Uh, I remember starting on uh, Casualties of War, which Chrissy and I worked on together, and it was the beginning, for me anyway, the beginning of the awareness of computers, which Brian obviously was a computer maker. Yeah. He was a you know, genius in that area on his own right. Anyway, to begin the casualties of war, he knew that he was going to be in Thailand, and we in the editing room were not. So we had to find a way to communicate because of the time difference, it would be difficult to talk on the phone. So there was a computer service called CompuServe <laughs> where you could, it was like an email, basically, the early email. So uh, in order to try to get a familiarized with me with that. He flew me out to his house in LA and sat me down in front of this computer. And Apple was probably one of the first Apple computers. And I had never, I didn't know what a mouse was. I didn't know anything. So he tried to talk me through how to work the mouse and show things on the screen and how to get into, how to connect with CompuServe. And that's what we did. We yeah. left, we would pick up messages in the morning that he would say about the dailies that he had shot or he wasn't seeing edits. And it was awkward because he would shoot and the dailies would go to London to be developed and sunk up. Then they'd go back to Thailand for them to watch it. Then they'd go to Los Angeles for the executives to watch it. And then we'd get them in New York, what, two weeks later, yeah. was it? Something yeah. like that. So it was already too late to do anything, but still <laughs> we, would, we would leave them, if we had questions, we could leave it on the computer. 
And that's pretty much how we got through the shooting of, uh, of Casualties of One. That was our connection. And I had tried with Chris uh, in the editing room to bring the editing room into the digital age, I guess. So, right. And so I said to him, I said, Brian, do you want to try editing this digitally? Which was pretty brave because the, the schedule, so as get, Chris right, even right, knows, was, right. we started in April. And I think we did the mix in August. It was released it was in October. Yeah. So, um, so that was probably not a good idea. But I said, I'm going to try. And he said, uh, are you sure you want to give up your sewing machine? <laughs> because the movieolas, as yeah. you know, were painted the same color as the sewing machines. Right. And, and yeah, yeah, they sounded like center, one, too. Yeah. And they sounded like one. Yeah. So anyway, I had many phone calls to Abbott, and I would leave a message and say, I want to work on, I'm working on a Brian De Palma film. We want to have a demonstration of your thing. And, and they never called me back. So probably a good thing at the time. We stuck with, uh, we stuck with uh, the film. Yeah. So, so besides having the, the apprentice or second assistant do all the normal work on paper, mm-hmm. Then uh, when they finished, they had to enter the same information into this computer log sheet, wow. and I was creating fields for this negative number and scene taken, and yeah. it was it was so much work for anyway. It didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Some but, software coders. But I'm, I it was an invaluable lesson because yeah. I didn't realize my life was going to be totally like that after that. <laughs> yeah. Right. But but you worked for Jerry, who you know. I mean, yeah, Green, yeah. Jerry Greenberg yeah. edited, edited Jerry's uh, edited some of Brian's films, and that's where I. It was Dressed to Kill was the first one. Jerry was the editor, and I was his assistant. On Wise Guys, it was the same thing. On Body Double, I got to edit some scenes, and I felt good about myself. Brian had these three rooms on 1600 Broadway, and two of them were editing rooms, and one was a storage room. And in the storage room, we kept a spare moviola in case one broke. While Jerry was editing, he could we'd have one right away. We wouldn't have to wait for the repairman. So Jerry would let me take some scene and go into the storage room and work on that movie. Oh, and I, I can't tell you how many <laughs> motors I burnt out yeah. going back and forth, back and forth, trying to make the decision of what to cut. But that's one of the first yeah. times I learned. Uh, but because you got to do that, I was the apprentice, so I got to be Jerry's assistant right. when you were in the closet cutting. <laughs> so <laughs> These were Brian's own rooms. So when you did Brian and Palmer's film, you worked in his in those editing rooms right. at 1600 Boardman. I think it was on the third or fourth floor, I forget. Mm-hmm. And he had, I guess he had done several films before with Paul, Prior to I, I, right. That's right. That's where they. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they did work there. That yeah. sound one was not even. It wasn't sound one yet. And I don't know if he owned Moviolas. I think we rented the Moviolas. Yeah, upstairs. Right. They had a, they had a, there was a, a place yeah. in the building that right. rented Moviolas. Right. But they, he had he had a lease on the rooms and the editing benches and reels and all the, the you know things you needed bins and split reels and stuff like that was all there. And then when he started the film, we'd get to bring in the equipment and go to work. I came on to working with him after Dress to Kill, which I thought was an incredible piece of storytelling. So it was really exciting to see that level of detail. He wasn't relying on the script. He wasn't relying on the actors. He was relying on the power of film and the visuals to tell these stories, which is what you see in all of his movies now. They're incredible shots and direction of focus. And then fast forward... Jerry was scheduled to do Untouchables, and he was busy. It was like maybe September, and he wasn't going to be free till November. But he must have suggested to Brian that why don't you let Bill uh, start the film, and then when I finish Jerry's, this is Jerry speaking, when I'm done with my film, I'll come and join him, we'll finish it together. And that's what happened. We got almost to the first cut, I think, and then Jerry arrived, and and was was the big Odessa Steps kind of sequence in the train station. I was a little... A little bit intimidated, I'll say, but but I also, as a respect for Jerry and his great craft, I wanted to leave that for him. And I would talk to him on the phone. He said, no, no, take a shot at it. Go ahead, go ahead. 
And I said, oh, yeah, okay, but but also uh, I was a little intimidated by the amount of material. Mm. So I was trying to get through as many scenes as possible, and I knew if I began that, it would take a lot of time. So another reason why I left it to Jerry. But what was nice about that time in, in filmmaking was that it was very physical, yeah. so it forced the assistant to be in the same room mm -hmm. with the editor. Exactly. You had right. to hand them yeah. the pieces right. or exactly. the pieces that they wanted, or if you try to anticipate what they might need to see if you were yeah. guessing properly that you, so you were learning right. how to edit. Right. And at the same time, you were able to observe the dynamic between the editor and, and the director. Right. And you learned about that too, because that's obviously yeah. very important. Right. Uh, uh, and Brian would would look over Jerry's shoulder and Jerry would make a cut and he'd show it to him on the moviola. And then Brian would say, well, maybe you want to change this, get this other take. So it would take a few minutes. We had rolls of film on the table and Brian would go out in the hallway and smoke a cigarette and then come back in and then Jerry would show it to him. So uh, that, that, he, that wasn't like all day, every day, but there were plenty of instances uh, when that happened. And it was, uh, it was a way that we could learn as, as the assistants right. or apprentices in the room and see what that dynamic was about and also to just observe what the way Brian was and right. he was always very um, I think he was always very respectful of whatever your craft is whether you were the sound editor or mixer or uh, editor apprentice assistant editor or editor he was always very respect he is still always yeah. respectful of what people do and is very sensitive to that and that's one, one of the wonderful things working with I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame, in conversation with Lee Dichter, Bill Pankow, Chris Bowden, and Maurice Schell, talking about their collaborations with filmmaker Brian De Palma as a celebration of New York's ongoing contribution to the global film community. You can share this conversation through the website bit.do slash framebyframe or via Twitter at at postny. Maurice, do you want to tell us how you first got well, involved? Well, I, I first got involved with him with Farface, but I had seen his films, like Sisters, and uh, but I'd seen Sisters in, in, in Europe, you know, and I saw it there. And then I thought, you know, I liked his films, you know, I liked what he had to say. And a mom, like, hi, mom, and, you know, uh, greetings, you know, I remember that. So, I, I, so when I had the opportunity to work on this film, you know, I was a... Uh, I was, it was great. I mean, it was like, you know, that was my first experience working on Scarface. And then uh, continued working with him on other films, you know, because I worked with Bill, who went, was, you know, as an editor, and Jerry was his editor first, and so on. So then I kept working with Brian. So, so connecting Brian to New York is, is just connecting just about anybody you work with, because there was 1600 Broadway, yeah. Broadway 48, there was 1619 Broadway, the Brill Building, and up on 54th Street, there was a company called Trans Audio. Yeah. And, and so those three places were within blocks of one another. And that was basically my experience of the whole film business in New York. That's right. They might have some stages, even in this building, perhaps, or across the street, where they shot stuff. But in terms of the post-production, it was though, it was a very small geographic area. And you couldn't help but physically come in contact with people when you're editing, giving them trims and everything. And also people in other films were on the floor or else across right. the street. They might be editing a film and you might be going to the mix. And there was a certain camaraderie that came about and a feeling of that that, come out of that came out of that camaraderie from just being in that same small geographic circle. Yeah. And that was basically the whole New York post-production community. 
he always lived here. So when I worked with him, it was always he was had an apartment downtown, and when you had to, you know, send somebody down, whatever, it was always he was always a New York person, and he had that same sort of um, attitude that we attribute to people like Scorsese and Lumet. And he didn't. He was born in Newark, and he grew up, I guess, in Philadelphia, or maybe just outside of Philadelphia, but. I just felt like it just we we were always in Manhattan working in the Midtown, Forty yeah, Eighth yeah, Street yeah, and Broadway. Yeah. I remember we got a I forget which movie it was. Maybe it was Scarface, but we after after a battle with the MPAA because he had that window facing <clears throat> facing uh, Broadway. He took it. We got the R rating sign and we stuck it in the window, <laughs> X rating, <laughs> something like that. And we had taped it to the window so everybody could see it. But, but anyway. I think in New York is the it, it's the vibe, you know. Like in New York, it's more gritty, and in L.A., they're more laid back. Everybody's laid back. Everybody's happy. They, there's a lot of talent out there, but it's a different way of approaching the work. I mean, I have to give you, I have to regress a little bit. When I started working, I was an assistant at one point, and I was on uh, The Godfather, and they brought in these, this Bill Reynolds, who was a film editor, who was passed by the... A nice man, you know, but he came with a shirt and tie, you know, and he was working in Moviola. And it, it was such a different way of working from people like Dee Dee Allen and Jerry Greenberg at the time when I was working with them. So it was like they were laid back. They just do the thing, take a thing. They go one cut. They do it. You know, you've seen them work, have you, Bill? Of course. Yeah. And so they're, they're just a whole different way of working. And here in New York is more... Intense, you know, it's like more, it's the vibe of the city too, you know, so everybody works in a different way and and I think that uh, you feel that in the directors who work here and have chosen to work here for that reason. But to, to add to his example, when I was working, I think he might have been working on Kramer versus Kramer, mm -hmm. it was on one floor, it was on, we were all on the same floor, Raging Bull. Kramer versus Kramer, and I was working on all that jazz. Oh These three films were on one floor. Like, mm -hmm. we, we could walk right to each other. Am I right, Bill? Yeah, right, right. And I, at the DGA building. So that was it. So that's an example of what he gave. So that that's... You have the energy. We're all the same, the same, on the same floor, three directors doing the... Well, you don't see that in L.A., and I don't know. That was know. another New York director, Fossey, of course. Yeah. yeah. So... Sure, and the proximity, you know, you can't help but feel somehow connected to that. Yeah. I mean, certainly the 60s and 70s influenced everybody's culture at the time. It was a, there was a loosening of, of rules and regulations and things, and things kind of felt more opened up. And I think Brian just was part, that was part of his psyche also. But I do know that there were several times when he would have a, we would get a cut of his film together, and he wouldn't really want to show it to anybody yet, but he'd show it to people like like Marty Scorsese. Would He'd invite him to come and watch it, and then they would talk. So it was, but it was more, on more than one occasion. Marty Scorsese came in and watched the film and left with Brian to discuss it. But it was the time, I mean, that's when the golden age, so mm -hmm. to speak, and I, and of I, which we are. It reminds me of the other directors did that too, right. like Sidney uh, Lumet, he brought his other a group of friends to see his film, or they would all get together. The whole New York community was very close, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, he would bring uh, Bob Fosse. Was Arthur Penn in there too? Arthur Penn, mm -hmm. maybe, but 
Herb Gardner. Herb Gardner. Mm-hmm. Herb Gardner. So today, so and Brian had his group, and they were other. But I think New York at the time was more. We're talking about it before. It's more collaborative. Mm-hmm. Well, it was also the anti-studio town. Right. I think these all of the people that we're talking about did not want to be right. in the studio production system unless they were they had final cut, I right. guess. But yeah. you know that they were very protective of their authorship. Yeah. And well, that's, I think, what, what joined all of those people together. Yeah, yeah. and that was a nice And it was thing. such, and it was, it was an incredible very, thing. It was, it was because, lovely, because uh, they were making the movies, right, not right, the studio. Right. We worked for directors, right. not for studios. Right. And I didn't really appreciate it as much as I did later when I started to go to Hollywood to work on films, or we started in New York, and, work, and, and I saw how it worked out there that executives would want to come into the editing room and work and sit and, and, and have some more influence. But in New York, we're so far away, they just physically couldn't do it. Right. So occasionally, even though they try to, they'll come to town, they'll ask to see whatever, but, but just having that physical separation, I think gave them a bit of artistic freedom that they wouldn't have enjoyed. People in general wouldn't enjoy being so close inside the studio system. Yeah, yeah. And what Chris just said is true because it filtered down to sound and everybody else. You had, Freedom to do what you wanted to do. It wasn't, you didn't, you didn't, you were working for the director. That was it, 100%. Mm-hmm. That right. was it. That, right. you didn't, the producers, in my whole career, I never even thought of working for a producer. Exactly. I mean, I've been yeah. working on films in Los Angeles right. and I'd be in my car on the way to the ADR session. <clears throat> I get a phone call from a producer telling me that they want to change the ADR line from this, this such and such to such and yeah. such. Huh? Yeah. And yeah. New York didn't, as you said, didn't do filmmaking by the books. It was, but you know, the way California did. We, right. they, they were totally wide open. It was right. like, it's interesting how the East Coast was the Wild West. Right, And, exactly. the, and that type of, right. and that style of filmmaking where I just say broke out and changed. And it also gave freedom to all of us in our own areas of, of work, I mean, in, in picture and sound. And, you know, it, we could just take off and try different things. It didn't have to fit into the box. Right. I mean, we didn't have these strictures exactly. in place like yeah. that had right. been in place from right. the beginning of cinema, <clears throat> obviously mostly began out there and, and developed and they developed their own rules and strictures and ways of doing things, which, as Lee was saying, yeah. New York didn't have to do. No, it broke the rules. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, you had more freedom to do different things that you wanted right. to try. Mm. And whether it was acceptable or not, it was up to the director. And, right, exactly. and partly the editor as well. The editor had a lot to say, mm-hmm. not just the director, because the, the, the editor was the voice of the director in relationship to the sound part I'm talking about. Yeah. I hardly ever spoke to Brian about sound on any film, and I worked at about six or seven films, ever, except for Scarface. That was it. Other than that, it came from the picture editor, and you get some guidance a little bit, and then you do your thing, and and that was it. Right. But and we was, would always have pretty long discussion in cutting, and especially yeah. in temping. Yeah, I'm talking you know, about it. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm just yeah. saying that there was, it was his feedback, yeah. you know, coming right. from. Right, that's why I'm saying you, we, we, you get it from the yeah. picture yeah, editor. Yeah, of course. You know, it relates the information to you, and right. he's coming from the director. So right. by the time it gets to, yeah, but, to the. Uh, but he was at the mix the whole time, all the time. You know, at least on the films that I worked on, it, it, he was there all the time. You know, and a lot of directors, I, I, they don't show up until until you finish the right. right. Well, he's yeah. he's evolved in that way. Yeah, he in my has. in my, experience. <laughs> he pretty much um, you know, like, like a lot of directors yeah. now, you 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 finish finish the dialogue premix, 
and and then he'll come in and listen to it, and sometimes he'll listen to the effects premix. Right. But he basically trusts us to, uh, like the dailies, to right. to to help him achieve his vision. And then come he comes and sits. He'll sit all the whole time for the final mix usually. And he knew exactly what he wanted. I mean, it wasn't. There wasn't. Well, I don't know. Take it in, put it out. Maybe try it again. And it was like boom. No, no good. Out. I like that. Maybe once or twice in a mix, he would, you know, like. You felt like, uh, oh, I want to make it better. Like I wanted to make it better, you know, like a little bit something do fix or something. Well, to you know, work on it for a little while, and and he'd give you space to do it. And after about twenty minutes, he would say, uh, in his manner, like, uh, "All right, guys, you know, this is it. Leave it alone. <laughs> I don't, you know, that's it." He'd give you the room to do it, and when he felt it's good enough, you realized you were doing your own thing or it wasn't good enough. He was fine with it before. It wasn't he what just, he wanted. Right. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't good. You know, he, he was happy with it before, yeah. but he let you do your own, maybe you'll make it a little better or whatever, but then after a while he said, okay, leave it alone. And, and he said it in a very affirmative way, a nice way, but affirmative that said, okay, guys, leave it alone. That's it. Supervising sound editor Dan Sable, whose credits include collaborations with Woody Allen, Bob Fosse, Robert Benton, Ang Lee, and Jonathan Demme, worked on over six feature films with Brian De Palma as a sound editor, and was the inspiration for the sound editor character played by John Travolta in Brian De Palma's Blowout. I didn't know anything about Brian before I started to work for him, and the first film that I worked on was Phantom of the Paradise. And it was like a home movie. <laughs> you, I, you know, it was very low budget, but it looked expensive. And I had to do a scene in the film as an audition piece, you know. And I passed the audition, <laughs> so I got the job. We mixed that at Magnum Sound without Vermalia. It was a team. It was uh, Brian and Paul Hirsch and me, you know, and basically that was it. Uh, it was on the mix of Law when we learned that the negative of a whole shoot in Philadelphia was stolen off the back of a truck. Oh, and, my God. Well, the truck was parked, and the negative, I guess, was supposed to go to the lab. But somebody hopped on the truck, stole the boxes, and they never recovered. And, and a big pall descended over the mix, and it was horror and nightmare for around three or four days. They brought in this guy who said that uh, he could generate, you know, a new negative off the work print, and they tried to do this, and nothing worked. As a result, they had to go back, you know, and, and just reshoot everything. But it, was, uh, it was a bad period of time, I can tell you. You can hear a more in-depth interview with Dan Sable conducted by sound effects editor Iris Spiegel and music editor Sherry Johansson in a one-on-one interview with Dan at bit.do slash framebyframe. I asked Dan to describe the kind of conversation he had with Brian De Palma in developing the soundscape for a film. Hardly any, hardly any conversations at all. You know, I just do what I thought, what I thought should be done and did what I liked, and then we'd screen it. I didn't make some changes or not, but uh, most of the times it turned out fine. 
I was just worried all the time about, you know, about staying ahead of it. Uh, that's all, uh, because they never really told me what he wanted, hmm. you know, in the film. But the films, you know, it, it told me what to do. I think right. you're right. I yeah. think, I think I've always, you know, talking to people about working for Brian De Palma, I've always said that his dailies speak to you. And he also has himself said that form is content for him. And when you look at the uh, cinematic form that's evident in all of his dailies, you can figure out exactly what a shot is intended for. And I was, like you say, you didn't know what, what, what he wanted and you were worried about giving him what he wanted. And I've always, I still feel that way. <laughs> and I'm like film 14, I think. But, but, but I always thought that, okay, I'll just try to figure out what the shot's designed for and make sure that it's included in the spot it's designed for. Then I can use that shot sometimes in other places to, to good effect, perhaps, or not, if he changed his mind, if he didn't agree with me. But uh, I've learned over the years more and more. So that shorthand that we have became shorter and shorter and shorter, the more familiar I, I, I became with his, his style of filmmaking. And um, that's worked to time, certainly a time advantage, but also uh, he often storyboards his films, or at least very complicated sequences will have storyboards. Uh, including the film I'm working on now. And I always challenge myself to not look at the storyboards, actually, and then put the dailies together. Yeah. And once I've done the scene, and Chrissy, she's, she's been with me, and she's done it, look at the result that I have in the scene I've edited and see how close I got to the storyboard. Yeah. And, of course, it's very satisfying mm. if I did. And if I didn't, I just changed it before I showed it to him. <laughs> <laughs> I think in conjunction with that, he also let the sound department, like Maurice, go out and do many other options without, obviously we didn't discuss it. And when we got to the mix, I mean, he had these beautiful sequences with, as we're saying, very little dialogue sometimes. And giving, you know, giving the option of having layers of sound in the background to also get put in effects that were not up close, not up front, to get more of, a, of, a, of an ambient feeling and having effects covered 50 yards away or off screen or this and that to enhance that visual effect that he wanted to get. There. It was an open book. He was, you know, giving Maurice the open sounds. And when we were mixing, we would bring things in and out and up and down. Of course, you never really know how they're going to sound until you put them together. And he would he would, would love us to do that. We, you know, we had people in the background over here, different sounds over here all over the place. And uh, if it didn't interfere with, with what he felt, they, were, they went in. He was always interested in creating depth, not only yeah. in the sound, but yeah. in, in the visuals, too. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen it. When, uh, very often when there's a street scene in one of his films, and especially in New York, there's this orange and white column that sits on top of a sewer grate where the smoke comes out of the top. And one time I asked him, I said, why, do you, why does it always have one of those things? He says, because it's lit up and it adds depth to the scene so that there's a light, there's a, there's a legitimate uh, light in the in the background that helps add depth to the scene and right. it gives it you know gives it perspective and and his point of view thing just is stayed with me my entire career which is that he was so strict about point of view and told so much of the story that way that it 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 really um, became my visual vocabulary and I am indebted to him for that Brian was extremely, always extremely generous, particularly on Casualties of War. I'm sure Chrissy remembers. They were shooting, uh, finished shooting in San Francisco. Most of the time when you finish editing a film, you get a week. 
as an editor. You get a week to keep working, and then the director comes in and watches you. You're expected to have a cut. So after shooting, you get a week. And I knew I had at least a month's worth of work because there was a lot of a lot of material, and I was nervous about uh, the fact that I wasn't. I felt like I didn't do my job well enough, whatever. And so, but he called. He was in the, I guess, in Los Angeles, and and he asked me what's going on. And I said, well, I told him, and he said, okay, I'll come back whenever yeah. it was. Yeah, a month later, four weeks later, he came in, and then we were able to show him the cut. And we were behind yeah. their shooting yeah. schedule so much. And, and so we worked very hard. But sometimes the studio won't let you have that extra time either. But fortunately, he was able to, I guess, use his influence to make sure that we got did the work that we needed to do. So you have that same time frame now, right, as, as we did when Casualties of War. But in the today's technology world, you have to do all the during that week, you're supposed to have all sound effects. People expect to hear a movie. Maybe not Brian, because he's he's actually very understanding. He really wouldn't want this, but wouldn't wouldn't expect it. But most directors today would. Is that all these sound effects are in, or, or enough to make sure that there's no holes or uh, anything dramatic that needs to be filled in? All of the visual effects have to be temporary, done as much as possible. The green screens are are done with the plates and all that, and a temp score. And a temp score. Which there's no music editor for. We, as the editors, do the right. temp score. Mm. So we, we we've taken on all of that, and as we all know, digital technology has, doesn't allow us to work any faster because we still can't short circuit our thought process right. in arriving at an edit. Right. Okay. So and that's and since that's the initial uh, version when you're cutting the f film the first time when they're doing the dailies, the review process, the recutting, and the saving the versions on your computer. That's all great, and you can you can. Uh, review things faster in technology and recut the scene and, and, and address the, the director's concerns in fixing something. But that initial process that you're doing when you're editing the movie takes the same amount of, of time. And so it just has become, it, our, our plates are a lot fuller. Now that may help assistance too in that we ask them to do sound effects sometimes, we ask them to do the visual effects, we give them scenes to cut as, as much as possible. And that's another way to keep them involved and make them feel like they're part of the project, which they are. De Palma's darkest films were often scalded by controversy, as in 1968, when a four-tier rating system, G, M, R, and X, went into effect, and Brian De Palma's Greetings, starring a young Robert De Niro, landed the first-ever X rating for its significant sexual content. Later, Scarface would face down an X rating until it was later revised to an R rating. Here, his collaborators describe his extreme violence and bloodshed as kin to opera buffo or exaggerated drama as definitive of the cinematic. I just saw Scarface like a year ago or something and just mm. couldn't... I, it, it, the violence was so over the top that it, for a filmmaker, it was funny yeah. you know it's really yeah, I, it's sometimes I think of it as opera buffo but yeah, he goes yeah. he goes out there right. in a way as the visual storyteller you can mm. and I find it humorous and amazing yeah. you know I was just trying to say about Scarface the very end of the film I remember well you were out there Bill weren't you in LA sure yeah, uh, we were. They were still mixing, and we, I was still cutting, like next door, like in a you know little little cutting room. And there were, I think Marty Bregman came and looked at the cut, at the you know the mix, sort of mix, 
It wasn't final yet, and he wanted more. Have you ever seen the film? Yeah. He had the very end. It's like everything. It's like craziness. Yeah. And he he said, "Well, it's not enough, not enough gunshots here." And it's Jerry, sound. It's sound. John, Jerry comes out and says, "You know, they want more." I said, "Jerry, I don't have it. I don't know. <laughs> you know." He said, "Go back there. Put more stuff in." Machine guns, you know, and it was already like there's a fire going on, it's exploding, you know. And then I, I didn't know what to do. I went to another cutting room to some guy, another editor. I said, do you have anything explosive? She said, I got nitroglycerin explosion. You know, this is a mech. I said, I'll give it to you. I put it in. I put everything in. Everybody was happy. But I thought, Jesus, before that, it was, it was hell already. <laughs> but it wasn't Brian. I came from Marty Bregman, but... Or maybe Brian too. I don't know. I just got the word. But the thing is that the part of it was an exaggeration. Yeah, everything yeah. was an exaggeration of the situation. And that like was even what when, was cinematic. Yeah, like about even when somebody it, got when somebody got hit over the head, you know, like which I've done a number of times on his films, it was over <laughs> the top. You know, yeah. like it was, it, it was not funny, but in a no, way you yeah. could think of it as it's so over the top that. It's not real, you know? Yeah. I meant uncomfortable. Co- Co- it makes, <laughs> it makes you feel uncomfortable. Colito's way. There's a scene, yeah, the, the boat There's a scene that we're in, the, in the boat, and there's, a, right. there's a, one of the characters in the water, and Sean Penn's character just hits him on the head with a baseball bat, and it goes on for like a minute. And it's going, going and then we finally get it just right, and we play it for, you know, for Brian, and he says, that's great, but they're not loud enough. I want to make them even more. True. I remember right. that. He says, yeah. I want more. I want yeah. more. I says, we looked at each other. We go, more? Oh, my God. Yeah. And I went and got a pig's head to do to do. I that. had a head on top. I had a pig's head and don't act. We sent Jen, we sent Jen, the apprentice, who was a vegetarian, told her to go to the butcher, <laughs> to the butcher store on Ninth Avenue and buy right, right. a pig's head or a sheep's head. And she wouldn't do it because she was, so somebody else went and got it. Right. And we brought it into the Foley studio yeah. next door to the mix. Right. This was in getting it even before they, he wanted it loud enough, just to get the sound, right. the sound good. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we, tried, yeah. we yeah. tried to do the same thing. We were banging on this animal, you know, right. sheep's head, let's say, to, with something to hard skull, to try to know? make the cracking sound. And it still wasn't right. And then somebody, one of us got the idea to just take the jaw and separate the jaw from the thing. <laughs> and that cracking sound that that made was like perfect. And we put it in, and then he said, okay, we, we, we all agreed it sounded good, and then Lee got to make it loud. It's loud. Brian McGarvey, what's in there? I, I want to hear that. Make that one loud. Make but, that loud. But, you know, that was his, uh, that, that was his, you know, he, it was an exaggeration of the right. situation, you know. And so, I mean, I, I liked working with him a lot. I thought it was, I thought it was great, you know. Yeah. I really did. I, I thought it was, uh, it was a lot of work. Because it was very detailed, a lot of things going on. And I think he paid attention to a lot of things. And I think that it was a, it was a hard job just doing all the things that you saw on the screen. That, you know, it's a lot on the screen all the time. It's what we said before with the, yeah, visual, the sure. visual depth. He wanted the same thing with the sound. Right, and I think you're led by how good a job he did in right, shooting right, right. it that makes you want to up your game, too. Right. You know, to to stay on par. Yeah, like Scott, like other you know other things like that. It's difficult to shock the audience now and have that same right. kind yeah. of exaggerated yeah, effect. Yeah, exactly. They be, everybody's become so inured right. exactly. to things like violence right. and blood, and so so how do you how do you shock them or how do you grab their attention and right. make them right. stay with the movie or with the with the moment 
uh, without because that's a tool you don't have anymore. Let's mm-hmm. say, so. And the other thing too is it wasn't continuous violence all the time. It was very specific. Right. One or two times in the film, there was a mm-hmm. a set piece. A, that's right. He had yeah. every, every film he does has a one or two or three set pieces yeah. like that. But yeah, we've we've had uh, always had occasion to uh, to uh, try to make the MPAA provide the rating that the studio wanted, and, and Brian made his art, made his movie, and it got a certain rating, and that was that. But then the studios were always insisting that for release, for distribution purposes, and in the old days, even for newspaper advertisements, you couldn't have a right. NC, whatever the equivalent of NC-17 rating, you had to have like an R rating. And so we addressed that in Scarface, and in yeah. Casualties of War, uh, and, 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 and uh, in um, Snake Eyes, certainly. I re- I remember one in Snake Eyes where we were asked to, uh, there was a scene where there's the woman, Carla Gugino's wearing a white blouse and the guy that whatever she works for gets shot so there's blood all over her dress throughout the rest of the film, uh, her white thing. And so um, that and other places they've asked us to tone down the blood, whether it's, you know, color or whatever. But I remember we got down to a point where I think, and I believe in this case they were trying to get a a PG-13, I'm not sure. Whatever it is, to knock the rating down a notch, and we had uh, taken the blood out of a sleeve, and and they had we showed it to him a few times, and finally they after all of this sort of machinations and several because it was all done this was a film opticals it wasn't visual, digital visual effects so it took it was much more time consuming and difficult to execute, and when we finally did what we thought they wanted and we presented it they still said no, huh. so. Um, I think it just ended up being the way it was before. Yeah. And then it caused a lot, there was a lot of controversy about that. Yeah. But I did a film with him called Redacted, mm-hmm. which has to do with people blowing themselves up. And the film I'm working with him on now called Domino um, has a similar, a similar situ, couple of similar situations where there's suicide bombers. So, but the reason that resonates and, and maybe shocks people is because it's it's so real. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's not it's not the grand opera violence, which right. is so cartoonish and and so over the top that you it takes you out of it and you enjoy it on another level. This is reality. So right. he's shocking us now, uh, like so, so many other filmmakers and and documentary and whatever, the news is shocking us with these, that's just that we had yesterday, right, these, yeah. these instances yeah. of, of something that f- feels really close to home. So that, that gets you when, you when there's something that happens like, so now it's not like outside of us. Now it's something that's potential for anybody in today's world. And that's kind of shocking. The music in this episode is by Ennio Morricone from the soundtrack to The Untouchables and Pino Donaggio from Blow Up. The sound mixer for this episode was Josh Hurley. Frame by Frame is co-presented by the Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes featuring the collaborators of Spike Lee. In New York, I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame. <laughs>